welcome to our episode of Scholars by the Sea, a podcast dedicated to exploring some of the most interesting scholars and books in the discipline of history. Our aim is to illuminate for our listeners some of the great work being done by historians at the United States Naval Academy and beyond, and to share with you the ideas that are driving new interpretations of the past. For our episode today, we have in the studio as hosts Associate Professor Wayne Shea and Associate Professor Matthew Janique, both instructors in the History Department at the United States Naval Academy. And today we are sitting down with Professor Mary DeCredico, also of the United States Naval Academy, to talk about her book, Confederate Citadel, Richmond and Its People at War, published in 2020. Welcome, everybody, and thank you, Mary, for joining us. Wayne, if you'd like to kick us off. Sure, thanks so much. Um, Professor DeCredico, could you just uh, briefly summarize the antebellum and the wartime importance of Richmond to, to get us started? Yes. Uh, Richmond ranked 13th in manufacturing in 1860 census. Uh, it is the South's number one manufacturing city. It was one of the South's largest cities, 38,000 people, uh, 11,000 in the slave and free black population. Uh, it bore the imprimatur of revolutionary era uh, with the statues of George Washington and Patrick Henry on the Capitol grounds. So uh, related to that, I-, I wanted you to maybe connect that if you could. Uh, as you know, and our readers may or may not know, uh, historians of the American South have talked for a long time about whether or not we should consider both the Annabelle and the Confederate South as whether or not it was modern uh, and whether or not the region fits in with the larger sort of narrative of American history, which we usually think of as a quintessentially modern place for better or for worse, uh, especially as it relates to the institution of slavery. So in your view, could you... Uh, tease out how that connects to Richmond's history and its place both before and during the war? Richmond in many ways is an anomaly in the antebellum South because it does have this industrial sector. Uh, It has a vibrant commercial sector that unfortunately is inextricably linked to the interstate slave trade. Uh, Richmond, slavery is dying out in Richmond in many respects, but they have a very lucrative internal slave trade to the Deep South. Uh, in particular, the Black Belt of Mississippi and Alabama. Greg Kimball has written a wonderful book called American City Southern Place, where he he talks about how Richmond sort of straddles both being an American city, but also quintessentially Southern. It's 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 very Whiggish politically. Uh, it is dominated by old families of Virginia. And yet it has a vibrant commercial and industrial class, managerial class, entrepreneurial class that is not found in other places in, in the antebellum South. Yes, that's fascinating. Could you um, elaborate more on uh, – you've already mentioned it, but, and you've talked about it a great deal in your book, of course. But uh, Richmond's industrial uh, importance, especially the Tredegar Ironworks. Yeah, Tredegar is its major, major factory. It was founded in the 1830s. Uh, by Joseph Reed Anderson takes it over, West Point trained. It's, it's, it has a fascinating labor force that is both immigrant, uh, unskilled, free African Americans, and a slave population. By the midpoint of the Civil War, there are almost a thousand operatives in the Tredegar. Uh, it does suffer a very bad fire during the war, but it really is leading the city's industrial capacity. Would that include industrial capacity for um, weapons and armaments and yeah. such things like that? Tredegar is going to be pulled in a number of different directions because it will manufacture solid plate for ironclads, but also uh, 
uh, solid shot for and Canon. Some problems with the uh, quality of the production during the Seven Days campaign in 1862, some of the cannons were exploding before being fired, which led to an investigation uh, by the War Department in 1862. And Anderson was criticized during the war for not modernizing his equipment more. And Tredegar would suffer during the war because of the blockade, cutting off key supplies. And in fact, uh, we're going to see a lot of robbing Peter to pay Paul, tearing up secondary railroads to provide iron to manufacture the goods of war. And really, by the end, Tredegar would like to sell, the owners like to sell Tredegar to the Confederate government because they just can't keep up. Fascinating. The other uh, interesting thing we might address, I think, is... uh as you as you well know, historians of the Civil War have talked a lot about how we should characterize connections between the so-called home front and the battlefield. And what's interesting about Richmond is it's so close to uh, to the battlefield per se. First off, I, th- I think just for the benefit of our readers, could you just explain in very basic terms why the Confederate capital happens to be so close uh, to to uh, the, conf- the federal capital in Washington, D.C. Yes. Well, of course, the first capital of the Confederacy was Montgomery, Alabama. And if you believe Mary Chestnut's diary, she said there weren't enough decent hotel rooms to, to stay in Montgomery. So we have to move the capital. Most historians believe that it was offered to Richmond uh, as a favor in response to Virginia's late secession in April of 1861. Uh, they th- Because it was the industrial backbone of the, the Confederacy, or what would be the Confederacy, it made perfect sense. Richmond would be defended at all costs, whether it was the capital or not, because of the, the Tridegar and other war industries that were located there. Could, could you talk, I mean, you, you do this a great deal in your book, which, of course, I would highly recommend to all our listeners. How does, um, for the average resident of Richmond, uh, how does the war affect their daily lives? And could you also sort of maybe give us some examples how it would affect, for example, uh, white women, how it might affect uh, African-Americans, both free and enslaved, how just on a day-to-day basis, how does their proximity to uh, so many of the, of the war's kind of most intense battles in Virginia would have affected their, their kind of quotidian existence? It's, it's omnipresent. You you can't. It's Richmond will become the hospital center of the war. So anytime there's a major engagement in the Eastern Theater, Richmond will be overrun with the wounded. Uh, it will be overrun by refugees from other parts of the Confederacy. So that the wartime, the pre-war population of thirty-eight thousand is going to blow up by eighteen sixty-two to a hundred thousand, and by eighteen sixty-three, some scholars people that topped one hundred thirty thousand. The problem with that is the infrastructure doesn't expand to accommodate all these people. So you have tremendous housing shortages, very high rents. Uh, you have multiple families living in single-home dwellings. Uh, women, in particular, are going to flock to Richmond, particularly to find jobs in the war industries. They favor signing worthless Confederate notes in the Treasury Department, but you had to pass a basic mathematic test and um, spelling tests. So if you're an illiterate woman, you were eased out of those jobs and were forced into, in many respects, more dangerous employment in some of the arms factories. Uh, For example, the cartridge manufacturing complex on Browns Island, which is in the James River. Terrible explosion there in March of 1863 that killed over 60 little girls 
who had been making cartridges for the Confederate Army. You also have women uh, suffering because inflation is out of control in Richmond. Uh, we estimate that by 1863, inflation is 700 percent, and that by the end of the war, it's about 1,000 percent. Women are starving. And as a result, on April 2nd, a group of working class women from the Oregon Hill neighborhood are going to gather at the state house and, and the governor's mansion seeking to see Governor Letcher and petition for poor relief. And when they don't get satisfaction, they go on a rampage. This is the very famous Richmond Bread Riot of April 1863. Uh, the mob grows to over a thousand people. The women are armed. They loot not only grocery stores, but jewelry stores, sutlers, uh, clothing stores. And a lot of debate about what ends it. Mayor Joseph Mayo comes out and literally reads the Riot Act. Uh, the governor appears. Some accounts have President Jefferson Davis appearing, throwing coins to the crowd, and then pulling out his pocket watch and saying, if you don't disperse in five minutes, the city guard is going to open fire on you. Uh, this is the biggest bread riot in the Confederacy. Bread riots are going to hit other southern cities, but Richmond's is the biggest. And the city council responds by dividing the population in Richmond into worthy poor and unworthy poor. If you rioted, you didn't get special tickets. Uh, if you didn't riot, you got special tickets to buy at government stores. So women are very active both in the workforce and in protesting conditions in the city, the overcrowding, the high prices. It's, it's a very dynamic city in that respect. The African-American population is, is fascinating. In the antebellum period, uh, slaves hired themselves out. So they had a great deal of autonomy in this urban setting. And they, although they were supposed to live with their owners, the owners let them live on their own. So they established little enclaves throughout the city. And what we see happening during the war is that that autonomy goes away. And they are increasingly kept an eye on certain laws that hadn't been enforced in the antebellum period where three slaves, no more than three slaves can congregate on a street corner. African-Americans can't smoke in public. Strange things like that are suddenly enforced. There's, there was concern because of the number of slaves in the city and more coming to work in the various industries. Uh, slaves are going to be laundresses. They're going to be nurses. They're going to be grave diggers. So you have the slave population and free black population in Richmond growing during the war. And there's always that concern about lack of white men. Are we going to have a slave insurrection how do we guard against that? And yet there's no evidence that there was ever any plot. Now, the, the, the African-Americans who worked in Tredegar, uh, as I think I mentioned, there was some concern about the quality of the cannon. And I couldn't find any evidence, but it made me wonder if perhaps that was sabotage. Uh, um, because otherwise you have the irony of African-Americans manufacturing the weapons of war to keep them enslaved. Well, that's certainly fascinating. Um, and I'd point out, you know, to listeners, uh, in my in my own teaching, I feel a lot of students still have a perception of 
of the the antebellum American South where slavery is is all agricultural. It's yes. on big plantations. And and part of the fascination, I think, of Richmond is that it in fact has this industrial setting, uh, which ends up being incredibly important um and, and significant. But one that I think maybe hasn't I know in your previous scholarship you've written quite a bit about this, but maybe hasn't quite penetrated into the the kind of the public consciousness. Now I want to sort of pivot the listeners, as you I know you know this, but our listeners may not. In Richmond's famous so-called Monument Avenue, there are these famous monuments to the Confederacy, including there were, a, there were exactly, <laughs> including a very famous imposing equestrian statue of Robert E. Lee. And obviously, there have been lots of discussions over the last year or so, for obvious reasons, about this question of how should we, what we should do with these monuments to, com, to the Confederacy. Um, and of course, that statue just recently was taken down. Um, so I, I was just curious if you might address how you think, as a real historian of this period. How historical knowledge, what we know about the history and, and what historians, how we should engage with this question of public commemoration going forward in relation to what we actually know about the past itself? That's a great question and one that a number of Civil War and Southern historians are addressing right now. It's a very hot topic in the historiography. I think there's a sense, what's troubling to me is the lack of contextualization interpreting the past, things that Americans did in the late 19th century through the lens of the 21st century. And it really is a disservice to those individuals. Uh, yes, maybe some of them had malice. Others probably didn't. Uh, it's, it's part of what has become pilloried recently, the whole lost cause syndrome. Um, the memorials were a way for Southerners to try to come to terms with their past. Um, Americans love winners, and Southerners lost that war. And that's very, I, very difficult for the post-Civil War generation to accept. I think one of the best uh, interpretations and explanations that I heard about both the Confederate battle flag and about the monuments on Monument Avenue was, was done by the then CEO of what was the Confederate Museum, now the American Civil War Museum, a, a woman who happens to be African-American, and explaining what these symbols mean and why they're important to understand and contextualize. And I thought, gosh, I wish all Americans could hear this, this brilliant woman, Christy Coleman, explaining these things, an African-American woman providing the context for it. Sadly, she's no longer in Richmond. She's now executive director of Jamestown. Another another fraught place in American history, yes. <laughs> obviously, and and it's, I'm sure this discussion can continue. But I'm I'm pivot to uh, my esteemed colleague, Professor Janique. Yeah, thank you so much. And that discussion really leads naturally onto some of my questions, which are really about yourself and what drew you to history in the first place, and and what drew you to the life of an academic historian. That's a fabulous question. I at the ripe young age of seven, was forced to watch a documentary that my older brother was watching called uh, Appointment with Destiny, and it dealt with different encounters in the past. And I was sulking, but I was just drawn to this man in gray who was surrendering his army. And it was Lee and Grant at Appomattox. And I started reading historical fiction 
And I went from that, I segued right to the, the hard stuff, the, the, <laughs> the major um, lease lieutenants by Douglas Southern Freeman, right, in, in high school. Uh, and I just, I always wanted to teach. Uh, I, I just loved it, loved the life of the mind. What's interesting is I thought I would specialize in Tudor Stewart, England. But I realized that all my fun reading was the American Civil War and particularly the South. And so as an undergraduate, I wrote an honors thesis on the Native American Union relations and uh, Confederate relations with the five civilized tribes during the American Civil War. And then I specialized in Southern history and uh, Confederate mobilization in graduate school. Uh, now, when I got my degree, the academic market was as bad as it is now, but I was fortunate that I actually had offers, and that's how I wound up here at the Naval Academy. That's wonderful. And of course, the, the story of uh, America's indigenous people in the Civil War is a really fascinating one, because of course, people involved in the Trail of Tears uh, are, are end up, some of them, fighting for the Confederacy. Exactly. Uh, Standwati, I believe, yep. is, is one of the last Confederate generals to surrender. surrender. Yes. Um that also leads me on to another question about about your teaching here at the academy. The, you obviously teach courses in Southern history and and the Civil War, uh, which I can attest are amongst the most popular courses here uh, in the history department. What sort of lessons can future naval officers derive from from really studying history and studying history well? Why is it so important that history is part of their future education as leaders? It makes them think. It makes them be analytical. Uh, looking at officers in the past has great leadership examples for them to, to study and, and learn from. What I find fascinating is that it also elicits conversations about the meaning of the Constitution and the oath that they take. And I've had some very spirited discussions of Southern midshipmen who say that, well, you know, if, if my state were to leave the Union, I would go with my state because that's my family. And it leads to this explosion from the other midshipmen that you're a traitor. How can you go against your oath? Well, I can't go against my family. And it's that's been fascinating. It also illuminates some of the historical inaccuracies. Uh, I remember one midshipman saying that he was an Alabamian and I would go with Alabama because I believe in the Constitution the way Thomas Jefferson wrote it. And my response was, well, that's a problem because he didn't write it. He was in France at the time. So it's also a way to correct some of their other ideas. Uh, it also gets to the notion of, well, why do you take this oath? Why is this important? Um, why do we need to – how does studying history make you a better officer? How does understanding your past, your American past, make you a better officer? Wonderful. Thank you. Um, now, to slightly pivot, uh, with the obvious exception of your own book, which is, of course, marvellous, is there another history book uh, based in, in Civil War history or otherwise that you would suggest to any midshipman to, to, or any citizen to pick up and read? I'm a big fan of Gary Gallagher. He writes extremely well. Uh, he has two books that I'm using in my course now called The Confederate War and the Union War. And it's a wonderful mesh of historiography and his own interpretation. 
Um, I think those are excellent. Uh, I'm a big fan of William Cooper, who was at LSU for years. He has probably the definitive biography of, of Jefferson Davis, and it paints a very different portrait than many of these midshipmen would would think of, of Davis when uh, they, they study him. Uh, William C. Davis has written prolifically on the war, and his, his work is not only solidly researched, but it's extremely readable. And I think most midshipmen would think, as a lot of Americans, oh, history's boring, it's dead white men. And these particular historians really make it come alive. Carrie Janey's another one who writes extremely well. I remember in high school, even in Scotland, reading Billy Yank and Johnny Reb. Uh, by, by, Wiley, yeah, yeah um, an, another one uh, to suggest. Anyway, um, with a final question, um, is there? Can you tell us about a moment in your time at the Naval Academy of which you are particularly proud? Uh, perhaps where your classes had an obvious and immediate or profound impact on on midshipmen or a group of midshipmen. This goes way back, but we had Eugene Genovese as a Bancroft speaker, and I was an assistant professor. And one nice thing about teaching at the academy is you can threaten your midshipmen. Uh, and I told them, you will read The Political Economy of Slavery, or I will make your life a living hell for the rest of the semester. And Genovese came to my class. And the, the mids, they didn't know who he was, so they weren't impressed. He was still a Marxist in those days. A, a very impressive scholar. Yeah. And at the end, he said, I've, I've taught at Yale. I've taught at William & Mary. I've taught at Rochester. I've been a visiting lecturer in Europe. I've never been in a class of this caliber before. And he actually wrote to the then department chair to say, this was not a Potemkin village. This was a rigorously involved class that were asking penetrating analytical questions. It blew him away. He talked about that all every time I would see him before his, his death, he would always come back to that class and how impressed he was with those midshipmen. It, it is truly uh, a delight to be able to teach here at the academy because of the caliber of midshipmen mm -hmm. that yes, you teach. Well, thank you so much um, you. For, for today. Um, and thank you to our listeners for tuning in uh, to our episode of Scholars by the Sea. Um, we hope you like what you heard uh, and want to join us again. From Professor DeCredico, Professor Shea and Professor Janique, thank you and goodbye. This has been a production of the History Department at the U.S. Naval Academy, located in Annapolis, Maryland. If you enjoy our programs, please let us know as we'd love to hear your thoughts. You can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at USNA History, and our email is historyproductions-group at usna.edu. For more information about the History Department at the Naval Academy, please visit usna.edu history.